Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. If you have a Bible tonight, let's go ahead and open it up. I feel like I came on a specific assignment. As a matter of fact, as I set myself to fast and pray to be with you, there's a theme that was burning in my heart. Uh, You can open up to Revelation chapter five. We're gonna begin there uh, and, and possibly bring a little bit of a peculiar slant on what might be a familiar passage or portion of scripture. Um, I really feel tonight that, well first, that the Lord's gonna release a fresh fire. Uh, And I don't say that in some pep rally kind of way. I don't really get down with the hype and all of like the circus, the charismania and all this crazy stuff. Uh, I want something real. I want it to be authentic. I want it to be powerful and transformative. I want God to be in the midst. I want him to be the one to touch people. I want our lives to be marked. I want to leave forever changed. I don't want to be different just for an evening or, you know, super hyped up on emotionalism, but then like some buzz or high or like some addict type drug or something. I wake up tomorrow longing for another hit. And I believe that God can do something deep and real and that if he touches you, that it can be a pivotal moment tonight in his presence where what he works in could possibly take you days, weeks, a lifetime to walk out, right? And so I'm believing God that he's going to release a fresh fire on a company of people tonight to transform them and to put them on mission in real life, right? In real life. And and, and I'll share my objective in the beginning. Uh, You can't be on mission in your real life if you're trying to escape your life. It'll be impossible to engage mission if you're trying to escape. And we'll explain. We've got some work to do. We're going to build a little bit. But I believe the Lord is going to bring hope to the hopeless. He's going to bring courage to those that have felt weak and feeble. That he's going to provide fresh fire to those that haven't had a lot of motivation. We've been down and out. We've lacked a fresh wind in our sails. That he's gonna brand your heart in a fresh way to grant you a different lens to see things that might not actually change. Hear me, he's going to give you a different lens to view circumstances that might not change. You see, sometimes we're praying for things to change and God is longing for us to change. Because if we would change, it wouldn't matter if things actually changed because I would be the changed thing in the things that I might not be able to change. But when I put God's goodness and sovereignty and power on my circumstances changing, then there's a lot of room for disappointment. There's a lot of room for disillusionment. There's a lot of veils that we have to process. Um, And heaven forbid that this be our perspective as we lean in towards the end of the age whenever the nations really begin to rage in a demonic unity against Yahweh, the choice of his son as the ruler of the universe, and everyone who loves what he loves and hates what he hates. But he will anoint those with the oil of gladness. 
Psalm 45, seven is an oily company. They love what he loves. They hate what he hates. And he anoints them with the oil of joy, the oil of gladness, and he exalts them above their contemporaries. As we look at Revelation 5 tonight, I believe it's verses 9 and 10, John is in this astounding throne room vision that begins in chapter 4, but really his sense of rapture and encounter begins in chapter 1. In verse 4, there's a door that opens into a revelatory realm. There's a voice that speaks. The invitation is come up here. Hear that in a fresh way. Come up here. We spend too much time with the earthly, carnal, fleshly warfare. We get bogged down too many times in things that are too controversial because they're too fleshly in nature. Um, they're, they're not birthed by spirit, and so they'll always lead to fleshly consequences. Um, John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's paid a hefty price to get into the Isle of Patmos. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's, there's a hefty price to get to Patmos. It, there's exile, there's the boiling of his flesh. They tried to boil him alive, many believe, but he just wouldn't die. And so they didn't know what to do with him, so they exiled him, they put him on an island all by himself. He was the first one before Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. But he's out there. And in chapter four, he says, I heard a voice above me. When I looked up, there was a door that opened. He said, come up here. And immediately, he says, I was in the spirit and there was a throne. And gathered round the throne is angels, elders with crowns, creatures with wings and eyes, the heavenly hosts. And John is raptured into this moment of encounter, this glorious throne room visitation, this place of beholding the things that are realer than the things that we know right now. And there will come a day when what's actually real, we will see it as real as it actually is. But John has a moment to be able to peer into or to gaze or to gain a glimpse. He's peeking through what's a window that's open much like Ezekiel in chapter one. The heavens were opened and I was taken into visions of God is what Ezekiel says. And here John is beholding the throne. And as he's beholding the throne, he realizes that all of heaven is gazing, all of heaven is beholding, all of heaven is celebrating, all of heaven is filled with awe, all of heaven is filled with wonder, all of heaven is celebrating a man that is worthy, a lamb that was slain, a crucified God, a bridegroom king, this worthy one that's been exalted by ascending after resurrecting, joyfully, willingly laying down his life, this man that alone is worthy. They are worshiping him. They are celebrating him. They are giving him what he deserves. And John is there. And in chapter four, elders are casting crowns and creatures are singing their songs and angels and saints are rallied around the throne and they could find none that was worthy, yes, Jesus. And in chapter five, the angel says, don't weep, behold. And as it comes down, John is able to now listen to the song that is erupting. And we find this song in verses 8 and 9 and 10. It says that they gathered around and they sang a song to the lamb that was on the throne. And they said, you alone are worthy 
Because you are the one that has purchased a people for God with your blood. You have purchased a people for God and the payment was your blood. And you have done what could not be done. You have taken a weak, broken, insecure, rebellious, hostile, sin-filled human creation, and you have transformed them. You have done what they would have never been able to do for themselves. You have made them different, not by way of language, not by way of external imagery or facades. It's not a smoke and mirrors act. It's just not learning some behavioral modification technique, but you have actually taken them and transformed them to where they are something fundamentally different. They are a new creation, a new version of humans. It is a brand new experience. Old things pass, all things new. You have done it. It took your life, your blood, and you are worthy forever and ever and ever to be praised. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And forever and ever and ever, you're going to be worshiped. Forever and ever and ever, you're going to receive glory. Forever and ever and ever, you will be the exalted one in the midst of a transformed creation, a brand new human experience from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. No one could do it. Bottom of the ninth, all hope is lost, and God subbed himself into the game in order to overcome death, sin, and the agenda of the wicked one, and he alone is worthy to be praised. And they're singing this song, but the motivation coming in their place of worship is you are extraordinary in every possible way. You have transformed human creation. And it was your desire that moved you even when they were moving farther and farther in the wrong direction. It was your desire. Paul would call it in Ephesians chapter one, the eternal purpose that God has, that he worked out in Christ on the cross. It is being filled with the knowledge of God's will that he prays for the Colossians in chapter one. It is the agenda of God himself and a desire that moved him to do everything that we know and see that's leading up to this climactic moment when all of history will be closed and God himself will reign in the midst of what it is that he's always wanted, which is a family, a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. He will be glorified in the midst of a company of people that love his son above every other thing. He will be exalted in the ages to come because of his own wisdom, which was worked out across superintending the timeline of history. He alone will stand alone in the age to come as the one that is worthy to be glorified forever because he will finally have what it is that he has wanted all along. And it is a people to joyfully share himself with in the place of forever. A bride 
that he longs to present to his son, a comparable companion, a suitable helper. On this presentation day, God will be able to give his son what he deserves. And that is you and that is me. And we need to see our lives in the context of this transformed people that God is going to be glorified in. We need to see our lives in the harvest of the first fruits that has been raised up out of the grave. Jesus is the seed that he references in John chapter 12 when he says, unless a seed of wheat falls into the ground and dies, if it does not, then it remains alone. But if it does, then it will reap a harvest. It will multiply of itself. And Jesus is the seed of wheat. Jesus is the one that has joyfully, willingly gone into the grave. Jesus is the man filled with God who is God. The God-man Jesus who laid down his own life in order to harvest for himself the eternal desire that him and his father have. He's the firstborn from the dead as Colossians 1.18 says. And there's something that he's after. And there's something that the power of his spirit is working out right now throughout the nations of the world, even as you and I sit here this evening. Jesus is after a transformed people. Jesus is after a kingdom family whose hearts are on fire, who are radically aligned by the power of the Holy Ghost to God himself and to God's agenda. He is after a new version of humanity that will be a kingdom of priests that will live and saturate the culture and repopulate the nations of the world. This is what he's after and in fact it is one of his merciful offerings to a rebellious world system under the governance of the powers of the air. It's a merciful offering because if God wanted to, he'd wrap the whole thing up in a moment, but he's patient. Peter says, beloved, God is patient. He's not distant. He's not disinterested. He's kind. He's long-suffering because he has a desire. And the desire that he has is that everyone would come to repentance. This is God's desire, is for men to repent to repent of their love of themselves and the love of the system of the world. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life, 1 John 2. He's after repentance, and he's kind, and he's providing time in order for men to repent and to declare his son as the king of their hearts. He's providing a window of grace and mercy because it is his hope that as he continues to give of himself in transforming a people that they will reflect the power of his ability and they will announce his desire before his son returns. We're living in a moment of patience, a moment of kindness. Man, if you're born again here tonight, think about how kind God has been with you. Think about how patient God has been with you. Man, if I was God, I would have walked away from me a long time ago. But he's long-suffering. The Bible says even when we deny him, that he can't help but be himself. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
that he's gracious and it's not just some act or some manipulation in order to motivate you to something or to incentivize you. He's being himself. He is this way. And in being himself, he continues to give of himself over and over and over because he realizes that in the giving of himself, in his loving kindness and the witness of his humility and tender mercy towards you, that it is the loving kindness of the Lord that leads men to repentance. And so when you're rebellious, he's kind to you. When you're filled with corruption and you have a demand to lead your own life and to satisfy your appetites your own way, he walks to you in humility to offer you himself. Come to me and I will give you rest for your weary souls. You come to me and I will give you more of me. You come to me and I will give you myself. You come to me and I'll show you again what it is that would be best for you to see and that's me. And we need to see our lives in the context of a people that have been wildly transformed. Let me tell you, this is gospel 101. What God has done is issued divine life to conquer the self-life. This is what God has done. The entry point is the old man that I used to know is now dead. Romans 6, he's been buried with Jesus. Romans 5, even though the inheritance of sin that fell upon the human experience through the first Adam, he's the first Adam because he's the first version of humanity. In contrast, there's the man Jesus, who is the last Adam because there never needs to be another. He is now the prototype. He is the pattern. He is the one and only. And to this image, God will conform all of those that come to believe. And through him, if the first Adam brought an inheritance of death that fell upon an entire human experience, how much more grace, how much more glory, how much more power, how much more transformation, how much more freedom, how much more goodness is there in the man Jesus? In every place where Adam was conquered, Jesus has overcome. And gospel 101 is my, my life no longer belongs to me. Because you've given me everything, I give you everything I have. And it is now my joy, it is now my honor, it is the delight of my life to continue to give you whatever it is that you want. My life doesn't belong to me anymore. I'm not living it for myself. I'm not living it for the system of the world. I'm not living it for the applause, the incentives, or the accolades that the system of the age has to offer. Like Daniel, when he's brought before Belshazzar, keep all your gifts, keep all your money. You can't possibly buy me. You can't persuade me. There's nothing you could offer me from your worldly system or your values from a sin-filled place that could persuade me to walk away from the one that has changed me. Gospel 101 is I'm now a new creation. A new creation according to 2 Corinthians 5. Old things have passed and all things have become new. Romans 6, I'm raised to life by the power of the Spirit. All of my members that used to be a slave to sin, that life is now over. 
I'm no longer a captive to a sin-filled life or power. I am no longer dominated. That is not what governs my life. Galatians 5 says I'm a spirit person. And if I walk by the spirit and live according to the spirit, I no longer have to satisfy the old appetites that were associated with the person I used to be. I am free. For where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And he who the son sets free is free indeed. And as a spirit person, I'm now alive to God, a slave to righteousness, and my life is now continually being transformed as I hunger and thirst for what God says is right. Because my old man had hungers and thirsts for things that are not right, even though in the moment I thought they felt right. But now I'm a brand new creation. I'm not just someone who attends meetings. I'm not just someone who gives in offerings. I'm not just somebody who's supposed to pray before every meal. I'm a brand new version of human. It's so dynamic. It's so authentic. It's so transformative that only God could have done it. And now I'm living from a place as a transformed creature. If any man be in Christ, that man is now a new creature. And now this life that I am living, I am living it, though the outward man may look the same, don't get it twisted because nothing is the same that you're going to find on the inside. And God has actually, though the outward man may look the same, God is changing up everything that I used to know that my old person used to be. And I am a brand new Creature, I am what I am, and what I am is only made possible by the grace of God. And Paul knew it, 1 Corinthians 15, that God had done something, and it was so wild and so powerful in his life. There's going to have to come a moment where you begin to believe in your own conversion. There's going to have to come a moment where you actually believe it and you take ownership, meaning you become responsible that God has done something in you. God has done something to change you. God has done something to bury the old man and to raise up a brand new man. God has given you his life. He has filled you with his spirit. You are now alive to God in fellowship with his son, walking under the sweet fellowship and sensitivity to the power of the Holy Ghost and the whole world is now brand new. And this is what God has done. He has made you a brand new person. And in making you a brand new person, he has now engaged you with an altogether brand new mission for your life. Because God is repopulating the nations of the world, city by city, region by region with these creatures. He's repopulating cities and states and regions and nations with this family of new creatures, this heavenly colony planted in the midst of a corrupt world system. This was Peter's charge on the day of Pentecost. Repent from a dark and perverse generation. Repent from the corruption of the system of the age and the governance of powers and principalities. Ephesians 2, Paul says there's two categories. Those who are dead in their trespasses, living under the tyranny of the powers of the air. 
indulging in a self-satisfied life. The lusts of the flesh and of the mind. But then there's another category. Those who are in the but God category. Those who would die in the first category if there was not a but God in order to bring them out. In order to translate them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light of his beloved son that he's going to honor on that great day. If God had not done what it was that God did, then we would have all died, some of us very satisfied in the corruption that we only knew. But God has done it in his kindness. He has continued to give of himself. He has continued to not give up on us. Man, I'm telling you, if you're running from God tonight and you're sitting in here, it is by God's mercy alone that you are sitting where you're sitting. It's because God has continued to be kind to you even while you've been a rebel. It's while God has been merciful to you while you've been hostile towards his love and his leadership. It's why God has continued to relentlessly pursue you, putting people in your life, setting up life circumstance, trying to create a divine intersection and intervention in order for you to give yourself to him, which he knows is what's best for you, but he won't take it from you. He is going to love you into the place of joyful surrender he's going to conquer you with kindness he's going to conquer you with love and humility the God of the universe is pursuing you if that's not mind-boggling enough all by itself but God has done it and he has done it in order to have what he wants now and then on that great day and what God wants now is a transformed creation. It's this family of new creatures. But he's not taking people out of the world. As a matter of fact, Jesus prayed it in John 17. He didn't pray that when you got born again, you were going to get to escape the world. He said, I'm praying for them. That you preserve them from the wicked one. He said, I'm praying for them. For though they're in the world, they're not of the world. Any more than I am in the world, but I'm not of the world myself. And I'm asking you to do something in the lives of these new creatures, this kingdom family. Let's just go ahead and say that. The kingdom is a family representation. The kingdom is not an event hosting center. Kingdom life is not an event, it's a family. God's not coming back to attend our events and sit in our green rooms. He's coming back to possess a people, to present a bride to his son. He's coming back to inhabit and to abide in the midst of a family forever and ever and ever. And it's time that we begin to correct the lens on what kingdom life is supposed to be about. Because if we see the kingdom or church as an event, then it'll be difficult to see it as a family. But the church is a family. The church is a family of these new creatures that are a sign and a wonder to the rest of the world. Because they are not just externally different, 
Because if it was only externally different alone, then the right combination of circumstances would finally bring you to the point where you could crack the code and once broken would reveal that the authenticity of what's claimed on the inside is only being fabricated by the external images that we present on the outside. But what's actually supposed to happen is that this family of new creatures, when you press them, it reveals what's alive on the inside of them. That when you crush them and persecute them, that it reveals what's actually going on on the inside of them. And that's why it will always be difficult to affect the world if we are constantly trying to avoid the world. And this is the whole journey of the book of Acts. Chapter one, I want witnesses and I'm gonna send power to get it. Chapter two, they're waiting for it and the suddenly of God happens. God fills the room, then he fills the folks and it's not cool for them to hang out there and just have their little pep rally until the trumpet sounds. God throws them out into the streets. And when he throws them out into the streets, there is a violent intersection with culture. Let me just go ahead and let you know, you're not always gonna be able to play the little private I love Jesus and nobody else has to know about it game. Right, Daniel and his buddies are praying and it says in chapter six that they create a law for everybody just so that somebody can't pray. They wanna take Daniel out and so they write an injunction. They file it into law that nobody can pray because I'm trying to stop that guy from praying. In Luke 11, when they rallied up around Jesus, they said, teach us to pray the same way that John taught his disciples to pray. But Daniel didn't get to just hang out at the house and pray all by himself with no public consequence. It says when they wrote it in the law that they came to his house and they ripped him out of his house and they brought him before public legislation. They brought him before the leaders and the government structures and the king himself. And Daniel says, I understand the consequences. I'm not trying to hide. I realize that there's going to come a moment where the intersection happens, where the confrontation with culture takes place. Because I realize that this isn't just another religious box that I'm checking off, but this is a clashing of two kingdoms. And it's what Revelation is all about. Chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the rest of the book is kingdom against empire and how God through the intercession of the saints is going to release judgments upon the earth leading up to the eviction of evil and everything that has ever resisted his love and leadership. This is what it's about. And Daniel had a moment where he had to count the cost. And I think for some of us, it would do us good to realize that it's not always just gonna be skipping through the park or frolicking through the tulips. Man, Matthew chapter five, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. Peacekeepers are insecure folks who don't ever wanna offend anybody. Where you're trying to keep the peace, not make it. Peacemakers are willing to, even at the cost of their own life, give an extraordinary witness for what it is that they know God says is right. They're not trying to hide, but they're running 
into the middle of the heat and the hostility. They understand the crucible of this age. And even if, like Stephen, they must stand their ground in the middle of the road when the critics and the haters and the adversaries and the rocks are flying, Stephen stands there at the end of chapter 7, weeping over enemies and interceding for executioners. Woo! Man, let me tell you something. You're not faking that. You're either transformed or you're not. And one of the ways that we find that out is when the consequences become real. It's when the crucible begins to hit. It's when the trials seem to abound. And for those of us who are trying to avoid it, you may be avoiding the very thing that God is longing to use to reveal the power and the authenticity of what he's put on the inside of you. We have these verses in Romans 5. We exult in our tribulations. How many of you are in that? We have it in James 1. Consider it or count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of all kinds. But God is planting a transformed people in every space and place of our culture in order to affect it. But again, it's going to be difficult to affect the world if we are constantly trying to avoid the world in every possible way. But God is so gracious that he is continuing in what he knows is his agenda. And he is going to have a transformed people that are going to spread through every city, every region, almost like an infection, if you would, that saturates the soil and the system of every place that our culture finds a representation. And God is going to have a people that are so in love with his son that are radically aligned to him and his agenda that they are going to live on mission every day in their real life. And as a transformed people, God is going to be glorified through the power and the quality of the life that these new creatures live even when they're under duress or being pressed on every side. Because there is a power and a quality of character that you simply cannot fake. But this is what it's all about. It's about living as a transformed new creature. It's not about learning new tricks it's not about adopting some sexy, relevant language. It's not about just wearing the Christian merch and trying to suppress all of my real issues. The Holy Ghost is not empowering suppression. The Holy Spirit is empowering transformation. And God doesn't reveal things to you in order to shame you and guilt you and to distance you. God is gracious to reveal the things about you that are not as transformed as he has made power available to you. And it's his loving kindness that he continues to provide circumstances where we get exposed. <laughs> because sometimes life has a way of revealing to me how much transformation I don't have. <laughs> Sometimes life has a way of revealing to me what's just fluffing stuff and language and then what's real life. 
And typically where real life tends to happen the most is at home. If we consider some of the absurd qualifications, and I'm saying that jokingly, some of the absurd qualifications that the scriptures writes out or communicates dealing with those who long to bear influence amongst God's flock and in the household of God. It is actually comical when you look at the qualities, the characteristics, and the standards for church influence in any way if we're using only the Bible. But that's because the things that Paul tends to deal with, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, um, Galatians chapter 5, when he lays out the fruit of the Spirit, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when Jesus himself is laying out the destination of discipleship, those are amazing places to begin if you would like to have an idea of what the outcome is that God has issued power for. And Paul says some pretty wild stuff in the consideration of those of us who long to bear influence. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, he's laying it out to guys who he considers to be spiritual sons. And the verse that was just on fire in my heart as I was getting ready to be with you guys was 1 Timothy 3, 5. Now, it might not seem all that amazing to you, but 1 Timothy 3, verse 5, Paul says, if a man can't manage his own house, then what makes you think he's going to be able to manage the household of God? And that's because what happens at home is what's actually real. Home is not the place where you get to unwind, where you get to exhale, where you get to cast off all the responsibility, where you just get to be yourself, where, oh, well, my wife gets me and my kids know who I really am and nobody else is around and I ain't got no church folk to impress and nobody's sitting at the house and I didn't have anybody over. So now I just get to be me. Woo, finally, because it's hard work trying to be that other guy that I give the image to because everybody else who's looking at that other guy, I've got to make sure that they're seeing what I want them to see and it's hard work to be that other guy but thank God I'm home now Paul's qualification for influence begins with things that are actually real life you got to be beyond reproach which means you can't be a person of compromise you have to be a person of conviction it means that there can't be any area of your life where you're just loose where you're just casual where it just doesn't matter And it's not that perfection is the goal. Perfection isn't the goal because none of us are perfect. It's not perfection. Leadership isn't based off perfection. We have influence because we know what to do with the things that God reveals that aren't yet as perfect as God desires. Be ye perfect even as I am perfect. Be ye holy even as I am holy. We are utterly dependent on God to do in us what he said he would do. And the areas of my life that are not being measured up to the standard or the plumb line or the measuring rod, which I promise you is not any man I've ever met, but it's Jesus himself. We're not living in this comparison and competition game where I'm constantly measuring myself by ourselves. Jesus is the goal. 
Jesus is the standard. And his voice in my heart and life is what's leading me into the processes that he's designed for me in order to transform me. And Paul says he's got to be above reproach. And then he gets into saying some crazy stuff. Like he can't be a person who's angry. He can't be a person who's self-willed. He can't be a troublemaker. He's got to be the husband of one wife. He's got to be able to manage his own house. He's got to have a good report with outsiders. Now, these are outsiders. These aren't your Christian friends. These are outsiders. These are people that don't know that you're born again. That you feel like, oh, well, they don't know I'm Christian, so it's not really going to matter. Like, I can do what they do when I'm around them. These are the folks where Paul says, if we want to find out who you really are, I got to go to the grocery store that you shop at. I got to go to the gas station that you frequent. I'm showing up on your job next week and I want to talk to your boss and your coworkers because I want to ask them, what's he really like? I want to ask them when they're not in a gathering, standing at the front, singing all the songs and dancing to all the music, who are they really? It's time that we live the lyrics. I want to know who they really are. And so Paul is trying to excavate, if you would, investigate what real life actually looks like for those that he is considering influence in this household, in this kingdom family, in this tribe or company of new creatures. Because the idea is that what's happening in real life is what's really happening. That's the idea, is that you can't circumvent real life because you know how to perform well in ministry. That where you actually gain traction for real influence in a kingdom orientation is by how transformed you are in real life. I don't give a rip how good you pray. It doesn't matter to me if you could preach the paint off the walls. I don't care how much money you raise. It don't matter to me how many followers or subscribers you got. It's time that we stop elevating gifting and ability and we start esteeming what God does, which is transformation. Because we can't assume that when someone is flaunting, gifting, or flowing in power, that it automatically, synonymously means that they are as transformed as we would like to believe they are. Because in many instances, we say to ourselves, well, they've got to be the real deal because of what I saw them do or how I saw them operate. But Jesus says in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that great day, you prophesied, you raised the dead, you casted out devils, and I never knew you. It should be a dreadful idea to think that God will use you in spite of you because he's longing to be gracious with those that he can reach through you. And we can't always take the say the response to be validation. We can't always take the measure of activity to mean that we've been authorized. And Paul says, that's why I'm not gonna deal with the presentation stuff. I'm not gonna deal with the ministry and the power and all of these things. We want these things, we want them all. Jesus said, greater things will you do because I am going to the Father and I am going to send you 
power that is going to actually allow you to live a authentic, transformed, powerful life. I want you to have this and do this, but never think that I am going to bypass what's actually going on in you for your idea that I only want to use you. He tells Gideon, Gideon, I'm going to use you, bro. It's going to be super cool. It's going to be amazing, actually. We're going to destroy the enemy in the land. We're going to rout them. It's going to be embarrassing for them. As a matter of fact, I'm not even going to let you do it your way. I'm going to whittle you down. I'm going to take away everything that you think is a strength, everything that you're going to try to use as a crutch, and I'm going to prove to you that it's all me. He's like, Gideon, we're going to make this happen, man. Oh, it's going to be so good. He's like, oh, it doesn't matter to me what they're doing. We're going to conquer them. We'll get to that. But in Judges chapter 6, he's like, Gideon, before we handle all that stuff, because it is, it's going to be amazing. I'm going to use you. Everybody's going to follow you. You're going to be this awesome leader. We're going to destroy the wicked agenda. It's just going to be amazing, bro. Like, it's going to be great. But Gideon, before we do that, uh, because we're going to do that. But before we do that, um, I want you to go home. (laughs) I want you to go home, and I want you to deal with the generations of idol worship in your house. I want you to deal with the Asherah poles and all of the pagan, idol-worshiping things that have lingered in your home. Uh, Because Gideon, what I don't ever want you to think is that I'm willing to bypass what's going on with you personally to attempt to use you in some great way publicly as if to assume that God is only interested in what's happening in the field and it doesn't matter to him what's going on at home. The thought that I could be powerful in public yet pitiful in private is foreign to what the scriptures is communicating and especially foreign to those who, as Paul would say, desire to carry influence. The reality is that influence comes out of a real transformed life because as we are living transformed, we are really transformed, and that's what gives us influence. The idea is follow me as I follow him, which means that Paul had a vision bigger than himself. He had a vision bigger than his own gifting. He had a vision bigger than his own name. He had a vision bigger than his own responsibility. And it's because he saw this man. And when he saw this man, he realized it's no longer I that live, but now it's all for Jesus. And this life that I now live, I am actually understanding more and more that it's not me at all. But this life that I live, I live by faith in the one that actually gave himself for me. And now I can say with crystal clarity and confidence, I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me because it's no longer I that live, but now it's Christ. And Paul says, you can't be pitiful in private and then think that we're going to give you influence to flow or flaunt power in public because that's not the way that it works. Because the way that it works best and creates the best effect is when what's really real is found to be real and powerful in the most ordinary and insignificant seeming places. But some of us don't actually believe that God cares about ordinary. We don't believe that God is interested in real life. So to hear Paul's charge 
that his investigation for influence is an examination of what real life looks like is difficult for us to actually comprehend. Because we spend so much time being conditioned by a world system and then we spend so much time being conditioned by a, let, let me say it lightly, a politically driven, celebrity oriented, Hollywood music industry infused, Western American dream Christianity that it's tough for us to consider that God would have a supreme interest in my regular, ordinary, seeming mundane reality that I live in day in and day out. It would be difficult for me to actually believe that Jesus would want to plant himself as he did in John chapter four for the woman at the well. He put himself in a place where she was frequently, where she was regularly, where she would have had to go multiple times a day. It was rhythmic, it was routine, it was seemingly insignificant, meaning nobody counted it as this great responsibility. No one was applauding her for going to the well because it was too ordinary. But in the midst of what was incredibly ordinary, God always chooses to reveal himself as extraordinary. And until I understand that God is longing for extraordinary in ordinary, I will try to escape my life when God is trying to establish me on mission in my life. And some of us are trying to escape our life. We're waiting for my moment. If I could just get that right selfie with a famous somebody and post it and hope that the right person sees it and grants me the right opportunity, invites me here. Boy, if I could just get the mic, I'm telling you, like I'd let them see what the real deal is. Like if pastor would just let me pray, whoo, I'm going to go for it. If I could just end up on the worship team. I don't care what song we're singing. I'm going to call it spontaneous and I'm going to let it rip. Because we're desperately trying to create a moment that is going to rescue us from the reality that we don't like. Because we can't find our bearings in God to find significance in things that the world considers to be ordinary. We can't gain traction with mission and purpose because we feel unseen, we feel undervalued, we feel overlooked, we feel dismissed, we feel like what it is that God has done in me doesn't have a place to shine the way that it seems as if he's granting opportunities for others that I long to run with. And so we're trying to run away from our real life rather than understanding that God puts extraordinary in ordinary. That it's in your real life where he's longing to display the real power of what it is that he's done in order to transform you and to make you this new creature. And this is what Paul gets into. It's gotta be real life. And it starts at home. Because home is where it happens. Home is where it happens. And that's where Paul begins. And it's not only in 1 Timothy 3, 5, it's also in verse 12. It's not just overseers, it's deacons too. 
And this isn't some exemption if you don't desire church leadership. These are qualities that everyone who is a new creation should be leaning into, should be moving forward in. These are for folks who are transformed that God can put on display to say, follow them. Because what you see happening in them is what can happen in you too if you would stop exempting yourselves and creating excuses for yourselves in areas where you realize you're not as transformed as you know God has given you power to be. Because it's always amazing to me how God destroys my excuses by putting someone else in my life. Oh, it's super cool to pray about whatever you want. You come up with all the excuses you want. There's 12 guys sitting in a boat. One of them steps over the side and is standing on top of the water. At that point, you've either got to kill that guy so that you're no longer challenged by him, or you've got to create a different conversation because you can no longer say that it's impossible. And for some of us, we spend more time sowing into the lie. I'm always going to be like this. Well, you don't understand the way my family is. Well, that's the way grandmama always was, and that's the way my mama is, and I'm just like my uncle, and you don't understand all my cousins are like this, and my great-granddad, and we spend more time investing in the lie. But this is the truth. God has issued divine power, divine life, in order to conquer the captivity to the self-life. And if any man be in Christ, that man is now a new creation. And I get it. It might take some time to learn how to walk out the things that God has worked in. And that's why we need discipleship. One of the ways that I would define discipleship is learning to satisfy the hungers or the appetites of my life in the way that God now says is right. Because I spent a lot of time satisfying these desires and appetites in other ways. And the conditioning of that way of life is something that I can't return to. The appetite of the new man can't be satisfied by the lifestyle of the old man. And being filled with the Holy Ghost is extremely problematic. <laughs> because you can't even be as thoroughly satisfied with the lifestyle of the old man as you used to be. Because God's mercy by his own life and spirit on the inside is going to continue to remind you, I've got more for you than that, and you know it. You can keep hanging out with them. You can keep doing those things. You can keep listening to that stuff and watching that stuff, but you know that I've got more for you. And I'm just going to let you keep on running, and I'm going to let you do your thing, but don't worry. I'm going to run right next to you, and I'm going to do my thing while you're doing your thing. And eventually, I'm just going to believe that over time, I'm going to love you enough to the point where you surrender to me, and I don't have to take something from you, even though I know it's what would be best for you. And the idea is that we're a brand new people, and this brand new people should live in the midst of a hostile and corrupt culture as a brand new people. This is what we should be. In every space and place where the intersection happens, we should be revealed with glory, power, signs, wonders, 
transformation, God's life issuing out of us, producing a consequence or a display or a demonstration of a quality of life that could only be real if God himself did it. This is what God is after, to put you in real life and at times to allow unique circumstances, trial, tribulation, suffering, sorrow, to press you and crush you at times in order to reveal what's actually going on on the inside of you. Being born again did not give you an exemption ticket from regular life. Um, as a matter of fact, if anything, it puts you into a category where God himself is now longing to reveal out of you what it is that he has done in you. And it is going to bring you into some unique scenarios where the way that God is glorified is that you don't respond the same way that the rest of the world would had they been put in the same situation that you now had to walk through. And it's not just walking through it where God gets the glory, because you can go through it, but not necessarily go through it well. <laughs> It's not just going through something, but it's the way that we go through what we go through. It's who we actually are when God is getting glorified, when the world is trying to press us and try us and crush us. We are now called witnesses, which means that we provide an evidence. That's what a witness is. It's someone you bring into a court scenario for legal matters and they provide a contribution that some would call evidence to the case. And the world is longing to see evidence. Let me just tell you, compromise is not evangelism. Compromise is not evangelism. You don't have to be like them to reach them. Worldly relevance is not evangelism. God's not trying to make you a better friend of the world. <laughs> At least that's what John said. That's what Jesus said too, but I'll just use John's passage. He's not trying to make you a better friend of the world so that you can buddy up to them and be like them. No one's provoked when you're the same. What's provoking is to see somebody go through the same things that I'm going through, but yet they're living from a place of power and quality and authenticity and reality that is so fundamentally different than anything that I know I could produce in my own effort that I am challenged, I am rocked, I am provoked. That is what the world is longing to see. They're longing to see evidence. And we have to get into real life in order to provide evidence. We have to get into the trenches day in and day out, starting with what's happening at home. And we have to provide evidence. Evidence at home, evidence on the job, evidence on my school campus, evidence at the gas station, evidence at the grocery store, evidence at the movie theater, evidence at the park, evidence wherever it is that I find myself because I'm no longer trying to escape life waiting for moments of ministry. I live my life by a, let's say, a 90-10 and what I mean by that is 
10%, and that's even being generous, 10% of my life is my public life. 10% at most. And again, that's being generous. And, and at times, I, I'm kind of busy. So 10% at best. But there's a 90%. And everything that I have ever gone to, be it uh, Bible college, be it leadership seminars, be it, you, you, you name whatever you want to name. Uh, in, in the church world, there's umpteenth possibilities of things that you can go to. Everything that I have ever been to has put a greater emphasis on the development of the 10% than they have the 90%. Everything I've ever gone to has told me to invest in the 10% because that's what's going to create opportunities. That's where God's going to make a way for me. That's where my gift is finally going to make room for me. That's where, I mean, you, you, you get all these little taglines and catchphrases and all that stuff. The, the emphasis has always been on the 10% and in the consideration of what to do with the 90%, at best, it's just been, we'll stay off the front page of the paper. So if you stay off the front page of the paper and put all of your energy into the 10%, eventually, God is going to be willing to overlook the 90% because what he's really longing to you is use you for what you offer with the 10%. And we've got this twisted mindset as if to consider that God is only interested in what we call ministry. These little events, all these little activities, and I say little in the consideration of what's going on in heaven. Right, and Christians are just consumed with trying to prove to each other how gifted they are. With trying to build all of our worldly notoriety and develop a following. A following with who? Other Christians. We're super consumed with trying to elevate ourselves in the midst of a people rather than putting on display for us, we should be in the trenches of real life reaching them. But we spend a lot of time longing to be able to get into the 10% and doing everything that we possibly can, even at times with desperation, believing that God is gonna rescue me from the 90%. But let me tell you what 90% means. 90% means that that's more of my life than the 10%. I'm not trying to offend anybody's intelligence. But 90 is a bigger number than 10. And that means that the majority of my life is spent in the conversation of what the rest of the world would consider to be ordinary and insignificant. Nine-tenths of my life being generous, again, because I believe that it's more than that, but we'll say 10% just for conversation's sake. 90% of my life is spent doing things that the world and ministry culture says is unimportant. Loving my wife well. Raising my kids. In Genesis 18, when God comes, it says three visitors come to Abram. In Genesis 18, 18 and 19, in the consideration of sharing with them what they're getting ready to do in Sodom and Gomorrah, they say, how are we going to fulfill the call that we've put on Abram's life? 
He's a man who carries a promise to touch the nations of the world. Through you, every nation will be blessed. Through you, the peoples of the world will be blessed. How are we going to fulfill this call? Well, in Genesis 18, 18 and 19, it says, Abram, go home first and lead your family in the ways of righteousness and in the knowledge of God. Some of you need to hear that. Before you're trying to get on the platform, go home first. Before you're trying to find a microphone, go home first. Before you're putting all your little videos up on social media and trying to attract a lot of buzz and shine a bright light, go home first. Loving my wife, raising my kids, doing the dishes, taking out the trash. I I have some people that actually think that it would be unfathomable to believe that I do these types of things. As if to assume that if you could just prove that you were gifted enough, that you would be elevated outside of the responsibility of real life. Woo! That's it. 200 people showed up to the meeting last night. Babe, forget that trash stuff. That's not me anymore. I'm telling you, if I can get 500, you're making dinner all the time. It's super comical until we understand the gravity of how close to home this actually hits. 90% of my life is spent doing things that the rest of the world and ministry culture would consider to be insignificant. Working every day giving myself in excellence to the witness that I have in my community, being present every place that I find myself and not withholding all of my Christian tricks for the next time I get to flaunt something in a meeting. The grocery store, being present because real life and real transformation to a broken, desperate, and dying world in a window of grace and mercy where God has a desire that men wouldn't come to repentance. I'm trying to affect the culture instead of avoiding it. And I'm not saying that I subscribe to some kingdom now theology. I understand that there's a kingdom coming and it's coming on that great day where the father will hand over to the son a kingdom that is unending and he will conquer and undo all of the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. And the rule and the tyranny of the rulers of the age and powers and principalities will be undone forever and ever. And sin will be evicted from the human experience. And God will forever lavishly and joyfully share himself with this family of new creatures that he will be glorified in the midst of because he has transformed them. But until then, we've got work to do. And the work that we have to do starts in your real life. It starts right now with you getting up and living on mission and realizing that God has an extraordinary interest in the ordinary places of your real life. And that I would argue and submit to you that those are the testing grounds. Those are the places of authentication and authorization that God is longing to reveal what it is that he's done in you. That's where you actually prove it is in the trenches day in and day out. 
and not as you pop out like some jack-in-the-box from a meeting from time to time. Because it's easy for you to hear what I have to say. But if I don't actually ever give anyone a vantage point to see how I actually live, then what I will have to continue to do is create distance rather than granting you proximity. Because if I dare grant you proximity, it will only create conflict because you will hear what I say, but you won't want to do as I do. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life. Pay attention to your real life. God is very interested in the quality of life in him by the power of his spirit that you live day to day. God is very interested because he is very invested. He has shared his life with you so that you can live a quality of life day to day by the power that he has made accessible to you. Timothy, pay attention to your real life and then to your teaching. Because in doing this, you'll not only preserve your own life, but also those that I've granted you influence with. You see, but if I'm not necessarily paying attention to my real life, and then I dare on take teaching and influence, then I'll never be able to let anyone see what's actually going on day to day, and I'll have to create a bunch of creative conversations in order to pad that or to give it the right buffers. Well, you don't understand, bro, I've gotta protect the anointing. Can't let anybody get close to me. Because if they get close to me, they won't honor me anymore. If I let you get close to me, and you no longer honor me because what you see in the way that I live my real life is not honorable. Who has the problem? <laughs> Who has the problem? Do I have the problem because you won't honor me? Do you have the problem because you won't honor me? Or could the problem possibly be that what you see is not honorable? Now, I get it. We're a people of honor, and we honor, like, irrelevant to people. I, I get all of that. Like, we honor because we ourselves are honorable. You get what I'm saying? It's in the context of real life and real transformation and stopping the exemptions and the excuses and learning all of the techniques and the imagery in order to provide something for people to see that is not actually as real as I say it is. Because when you get into real life, there are unavoidable moments of revealing. Right? Anybody who's in the trenches of real life, you understand that there are unavoidable moments of revealing. But in these moments of revealing, rather than being shamed, we should, we should with greater jealousy, lean into God. In these moments of exposure, rather living out of condemnation, Right, because that's the reality. Romans 6 is what's real. We're dead to sin, alive to God. We're a new creation, a brand new experience of humanity. That's what's real. Well, if I don't anchor myself in Romans 6, I end up dealing with Romans 7, the tug of war. I can't seem to do what I wanna do, and I always do the things I don't wanna do. And when I don't anchor in Romans 6, I live Romans 7, and then I end up with Romans 8.1, living guilt-ridden and condemned all the time. But there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ because God is calling us higher. 
because God is causing us to realize the power that's been made available in him by his spirit to transform us on a fundamental level where we're not trying to fake it till we make it, but God is reconfiguring our human experience to where we are something different and we just don't know how to do things that are different. And this is what he's after. And he's actually issuing fire for you to do it. For you to live on fire in your everyday life. And I get it, this seems absurd because for some of us, we don't think that our everyday life is that important. And this is what we have to conquer. Is that when you can understand how invested God is in your regular life, when you can begin to see the great value and the supreme interest that God has in what you say is ordinary, what you say is mundane, what you say is behind the scenes, unappreciated and disconnected from the place of purpose. When you can begin to see that God has been interested and invested in what no one else might appreciate, you'll rise to the occasion with a different perspective. And from that vantage point, God can set you on fire to live on fire for things that used to be ordinary. And you can return to routine places with a new sense of mission. You can return to things that are rhythmic and things that others say are too ordinary to consider to be important. And you can say, I don't see it the same way that the culture sees it because I've been changed. I don't think about it the same way that the world thinks about it because God has done something in me. And you can begin to give yourself to real life. Man, what would it look like if you gave 100% of your effort in God to your real life? And you weren't waiting for your moment, but you realized your moment was every day. And because the eyes of God see you, it doesn't matter if the world or the culture or ministry culture sees you. What would it look like to get up and to provide a witness day in and day out of a transformed person with a transformed response, even through the crucible of trial and suffering and be it may as the world brings different circumstances to your doorstep, what would it look like if you were to get up every day rising to the occasion by the power of the spirit? I'm telling you what it would look like. We'd begin to saturate the soil of our city. We'd begin to infect, if you would, the system of our culture. In every space, God would provide a witness. In every place, he would have a transformed people. In every opportunity, this family of new creatures living their life in God by the Spirit would be on mission and no one of us would be avoidable. Man, I'm believing that God is going to put your life in the game in real life. It's time to get out of the stands and to stop applauding all the ones that you think are super gifted. Watch them go. Ephesians 4 says that gifts to the body are supposed to awaken the saints and activate them to a life of ministry. 
It's time to wake up and to get in the game. It's time to understand that God is not only with you, but that he's invested in you, in your actual day-to-day, and that because he sees you and he's with you, that you can live on mission with a kingdom purpose and that your value comes from the place of obedience. And I believe that God's going to give you fire, which is where I started. That he's going to fire you up for ordinary. Where you, like him, would begin to be extraordinary in ordinary. Where you would give your best effort to the things that aren't going to get you more likes and followers and subscribers. Where you would be extraordinary in things that maybe no one else is going to see and that there's no way to leverage that moment against other desires that you have. That God's gonna give you a fire, a branding on your heart to start doing things that are ordinary in an extraordinary way. That he's going to revitalize your sense of mission and purpose. That you're gonna live from a place of value. God sees me and I don't care who else does. And even if it's just to the well and back every day, I know Jesus is there. That the way that I'm going to touch the world is by letting him touch my house. And that I've got to go home first. And that I've got to pay attention to my real life. And that what's happening at home is what's actually happening. And so if there's any transformation, any traction that's real, that's where it's got to begin. And I'm no longer trying to escape. I'm no longer trying to avoid. But Lord, if you would touch me, and set my heart on fire. Man, I'm gonna get in this thing. If you would touch me and you would set my heart on fire, then I believe that you could send me into what everyone else says is ordinary. And if you would reveal your power and your glory in ordinary, Lord, I'm with you. Because I realize that ordinary is extraordinary to God. Almost 30 years, we hear nothing about what Jesus does, and I believe it's on purpose. And then three and a half years, He rises. And because of our conditioning, we have greater appreciation for the three and a half than we do the 30. (laughs) Because for most of us, again, we put a heavier appreciation on the 10% than we do the 90. (laughs) Real life, regular life in God in a transformed way. Real life, regular life in God with a heart that's on fire. Real life, regular life in God as a new creature, given an extraordinary witness to the world around us. And there's nothing you could do to us to crack us or break us because God has done something authentic on the inside of us. And this is what I believe the Lord is wanting to do. I believe he's wanting to saturate this city and wherever you might've come from, if you're from a different place or a different locale, then God's wanting to do something to you tonight and touch you tonight to send you back home to carry something. But he's wanting to do something in our heart and in our life tonight where the way that we live day in and day out becomes transformed because we ourselves are transformed. And I believe to every humble and hungry heart in the room tonight that God is longing to send fire upon the altar of sacrifice. We sang it, but it's time to live it. He's longing to send fire upon the altar of sacrifice. 
And if you would say, Lord, here I am and here's my life. Touch me and give me grace and set me on fire. I'm going to rise in extraordinary in places that are ordinary. You're not waiting for your moment. God is waiting for us to wake up. It's time to be awakened and to get activated. Every one of us are in full-time ministry. Every one of us are in the game. No one of us bought a ticket as a spectator sitting in the stands waiting for the popcorn guy to swing by. It's time to wake up and to get in this thing. And when I say in this thing, I mean in your real life with a sense of mission and purpose. In your real life in an unrecognizable kind of way. And this is what I believe God wants to put fire on you for. Where you get fired up for living your life. And we stop comparing and competing and longing to be somebody else. Where we get fired up to live our lives. And we stop trying to escape. And we stop trying to escape. Man, before I ask for some sort of response, I want to tell you, God sees you. Man, for some of you, if that's all you came to hear tonight, he sees you. He sees you. He sees all of your tears. He sees your travailing. He sees your longing for kingdom purpose. He sees the content of your heart as you lay it bare before him every day, feeling unappreciated because we've been so conditioned to believe that unless the right important or gifted people think we're super cool, then we're not really cool. He sees you. He knows exactly where you are. And he's put you there. And your call is he's carved out an intentional space for you to live your life and to love him with everything that you have. And at the end of that effort, at the close of history, there's going to be one man with eyes like fire and a sword coming from his mouth, feet brash like bronze, that is going to be able to validate the effort of your life. There's one man alone who's worthy to say, well done. There's one man alone, and his opinion, I promise you, is what's going to matter most. And his smile and his approval and the joy that is going to radiate from his face when he sees those that he loves and he finally gets to possess them in the way that he's always wanted to. To hear, well done. It doesn't matter to me if nobody else appreciated you. I saw you. And you gave me everything. I saw you. And you loved me right where you were. I saw you. And you lived your life for me and you honored me. I know where you are. Man, I believe that the Lord wants some of us to be reassured that he knows exactly where you are tonight. He knows exactly where you are tonight. And I believe that he himself wants to come and touch your heart. Because I promise you, if God doesn't do it and if it's not real by his spirit, it's not going to be real. There's not going to be enough hyper-emotionalism to last long enough. It wears off after a day or two. <laughs> and then there we find ourselves again with normal. And so to alter that, what we do is we try to run to the next thing. Because maybe if I get to the next thing, I'll get something on me that will help to buffer how disappointed I am with normal. And then when that wears off, I'm going to run to the next thing and 
try to find somebody else because the last guy obviously couldn't get it done and it didn't last long enough and I thought I was going to be able to get out of normal, but I don't think God's trying to get you out of normal. For I pray that even though they're in the world, that they wouldn't be of it. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.